Hello, and welcome to the Don't Shop on Tuesdays podcast. We're your hosts, Jacob and Barry, joined with Maxwell Hope. Today, we'll be discussing some of our unrepresentative policies around why it is that we don't shop on Tuesday. You've already heard from a few of our podcasts various topics like environmental issues that we've brought up on some of our local spotlights. But today, we're going to be expanding on more of those issues and how the methodology behind you know, choosing that. And I'm going to say this a lot. Thank you, all of you, for everything that you do. We desperately need to make democracy a participatory sport. We have, to, we have to vote. We have to learn about the issues. We have to rally. We have to call our legislators. They are, in fact, or maybe only in theory, public servants. So the philosophy behind Don't Shop on Tuesday is that by uniting, by creating a coalition of people fighting for issues all over the country, demanding and needing policies and legislation, we gain heft and strength. And since all issues ultimately intersect, all problems ultimately intersect, we need to be united in what we're fighting for. Exactly. And so, as we've discussed before, one of the key criterion is that when we look for policies, we're looking for things that have at least 60% or more support in the country around a particular issue. This lets us do two things. One, right, we have greater confidence that even with errors in polling or changes in opinion that we do indeed have majority support. And then a little bit less, you know, sort of formally in our own democratic system, as we've mentioned before, you know, when you have a supermajority, so over 60% support, that's sort of the threshold at which we've determined that as a country that we're going to move forward on an issue, even if there's some strident opposition. Also, to, to circle back, we are not only not winning enough, we are losing ground on some issues that maybe we didn't take for granted, but have been part of our legacy, our laws, and our customs for decades, even, even longer. There are actions throughout the country to bring back child labor. I mean, who, who, didn't, who thought that w- was resolved? I mean, I thought that was a done deal, that we didn't want our children in these dangerous jobs. We wanted them to get educated. Women's reproductive rights and health took huge steps backwards, not to mention unions. So not only do we have to band together to get what we need, but we also need to stand up together and say, you are not taking away our rights. You're not going to take away the victories that we have earned. Exactly. And you can really see with a bunch of those examples that you gave, Barry, that in a lot of cases, these are working in, these are actions and policies that are being done that are in direct contravention of the desires of the people. And we don't even need to go to polling for things like this. We can see during the past several, you know, in 2022, and then in special elections since Roe v. Wade was overturned, that we've seen a massive outpouring of support. And in fact, wherever it is brought up across the ballot, we see, you know, sort of a repudiation of these sorts of unrepresentative activities. And so the key, right, here is, as you were saying, all of these sort of unrepresentative issues often coalesce in this, you know, nexus of of unrepresentative government, where our government has been captured by those, you know, either extremist or moneyed interests and are not responding to the people. So, you know, another great example of this 
is things like, you know, environmental issues where we've seen, you know, if you look back to 2018, when we first started the, the protest, you could see that things like the Green New Deal, you know, had massive amounts of support over 80 percent. And yet we didn't see, despite that being a, you know, fantastic piece of policy for labor as well as health and the environment, we didn't see that moving forward because there were certain special interests that wanted to avoid, you know, action there. And then you could see over time, propaganda ends up ends up paring down some of that support. So we went from 80% support to just over, you know, just in the mid 50s in 2021, according to day, Date for Progress. But we know that that's not a situation where the underlying environmental issues in and of themselves are actually being turned on by the American people. They're not changing their views on that. When you actually go down into those individual issues, right, and pair back the sort of poisoned language that propaganda outlets have managed to, you know, sort of poison the people against the concept of and the buzzwords of a Green New Deal, when you start looking at things like when we rejoined the Paris Accords with 69% support, over 60% believe that climate change is an emergency, and over two-thirds of American adults say that the government is doing too little to reduce climate change and, in fact, needs to take more direct action. And we are currently seeing, you know, Republicans trying to undo things like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And this is, again, in spite of the fact that over 80 percent of people want the EPA to protect the water with nearly 70 percent saying that that's very important. So we're looking at these types of issues and we're saying that, you know, the American people are enormously clear on things like this. And yet, well, we know the reason why. And yet, because our politicians are captured by moneyed interests, in the particular case, the environment, generally fossil fuel interests, we don't we don't see any action. Not to mention the fact that Democrats are not standing up. You know, it could be overt actions, but both parties have failed the American people. And that in aggregate, we have more strength and more economic clout than, than the establishment does. What we're saying is that we can consciously use our consumer power by where and when and how we shop. And I, I like to say, I don't like it, but I'm sick of hedge fund managers determining public policy. Who are these people that come in and override what the people want and what this country needs? And there's two major issues right now that really frighten me. The first is how captured our elected officials are, how dependent they are on money, and how money dictates most public policy. Can you imagine with anything else besides mass shootings that that guns would be allowed? And not only allowed, but they're making gun ownership easier to, easier to do and less accountable. And the second thing that is extremely ugly and cruel is that elected officials that have no, no intention of governing, of no interest in finding solutions, actually cr create diversions or what I call collateral damage. What they're saying is, look over there, there there's all this crime. They, they don't specify it. But, oh, it's scary, there's crime. Or, oh, there's LGBTQ community. Oh, scary. And they try to divert from their own failings to find scapegoats within, within the country. And that is not, first of all, 
We are all a country together. We are all citizens here. And that is not solving any of our problems. It is just it just diverting attention so people don't have to do their job. Absolutely. I, I think that, uh, you know, we can go on and on about the, you know, the sort of vast array of issues that Americans at large just are not seeing their government address. And this leads to, unfortunately, I would love it if the response when the government doesn't address things like the environment or betrays people on their reproductive rights or fails to recognize them as fully human in the case of LGBTQ individuals or many minority groups, if we're being honest, that it would be nice, you know, if we were all like, like Barry, <laughs> that takes that information in and becomes angry and energized. But often what happens is that people lose hope and become apathetic and disengaged instead. And so one of the keys about we're hoping with this movement and why we reemphasize constantly that this is that these issues are supported by a supermajority of people is that people, even though it sometimes feels like from very loud minority you know, sort of minority opinion voices that it, that you can feel very alone in believing some of these sort of pro-human, you know, oftentimes called progressive ideology that in fact, these are what Americans believe by and large. They are in support of that. And we, our job is to figure out how to manage to bring them together around these issues in a way that actually they feel empowered in a sense of community rather than isolated and atomized. There's another element going on is that there's a conscious there's a conscious move to suppress voting and strategically suppress voting that they worked so hard in Florida Desmond Mead and and his allies down there to get the people that were recently that were formerly incarcerated to be given the right to vote which they certainly should have and now the governor the quote unquote moderate governor of Virginia is trying to do the same tactic, to go one by one, case basis of people that have been incarcerated, whether or not they should have this basic constitutional right. And we know, and we'll, we'll discuss it in further podcasts, that the judicial system is not, in fact, blind and is not, in fact, always fair. So you are deliberately going into certain communities and certain demographics and you are doing everything you can to, to not get people to vote, to suppress the vote. And at the same time, there are people out there questioning the integrity of our voting system, which, which can, as Jacob says, can lead to apathy or hopelessness. And yes, my, my motto is stay angry, don't shop on Tuesday, and keep fighting. We've got to unite because we cannot not get these get these policies and legislation that we need. just want to build for a moment on what you were saying around fighting and especially how, you know, both parties in this country are a problem, especially on the Democratic side, often more from the omission of actually fighting for things that they say that, that they campaign on and that they say are important rather than sometimes it's a direct attack. But more often with Democrats, it's a failure to fight. And we can see, you know, a perfect example of this is with 
Biden administration just recently allowing the Willow Project to pass, despite both promising specifically to not have any new oil drilling in the Alaska, you know, in in the Alaska, you know, wilderness, which he's reneging on that promise. And his argument is, again, around the fact that they might have lost in court, that they would have been sued and they could have lost in court. And again, the problem here is that I don't know whether or not they would have. But we need people who are going to fight. We need politicians who are going to say whether or not we add, you know, whether or not we are certain that we can win. This is a fight worth having and potentially, if necessary, worth losing. But we need to gain that impetus and we need to gain back. If our politicians aren't going to do it for us, then we need to figure out how to organize and galvanize each other as both a political and, as we've mentioned before and we'll mention again, an economic you know, force that can actually speak the language of power and begin affecting these sorts of things. So we don't see Biden feeling comfortable with reneging on extremely important campaign promises. He also reneged on abortion. He said day one he was going to protect abortion. So did President Obama. And he, he all he, President Obama had eight years to do it. We, we need an economic cudgel to keep all elected officials answerable to us. When I was in graduate school, I wrote a paper on, and the title was Put Servant Back in the Public Service, Public Servant. Now, I don't want to demean it in any way, but we cannot escape the fact that they should be working for us. They should be representing us. They don't represent a handful of billionaires. And there has to be a way that we can stand up and say, no, this is what you promised. No, you can't do this. No, you cannot marginalize this community. No, you cannot override that ballot issue. And what DSOT is doing by gaining allies throughout the country, fighting for a variety of issues, is we're saying, regardless of where we live or what we look like or what we feel or our age or our race or our religion, we are standing together because we, with these supermajorities, this is what this country needs. This is what we need. So it's a very simple, it's very simple. Do not feel hopeless. What's the old joke? If, if you're, if you're worried, then you've been paying attention. We haven't been getting what we need and we need to hand in hand stand together with people all over the country fighting. So another great example here of a topic that is going to affect everyone deeply, and the American people are very clear on how they want politicians to serve them, is in the ongoing discussion around Social Security. We've once again seen Republicans, with the odd exception of Donald Trump, start to gear up the arguments around how and why it is that we absolutely must cut Social Security and drive more, pe- more elderly people back into poverty. It's just we can't, we can't not do it, according to them. And 76% of voters would, would argue that we should pay more into Social Security rather than see benefits cut. 82% just reject cuts and modifications outright when asked. And three quarters of people, of course, say that the most obvious solution here is not to raise the retirement age or to do some other modification, but is in fact to raise the cap 
on the wealthy who know who currently don't actually pay in their fair share into Social Security. But of course, that's not the type of argument that we see being made, you know, by most of the politicians, certainly not in a rigorous manner that anyone feels any danger over the Social Security cap actually being raised, despite the fact that we know that this would increase the solvency for at least another 20 years. And, you know, it's hard to create economic forecasts beyond that. But just the fact that certain certain choices and policy, you know, outcomes are not even considered, even when they're extremely popular, goes to show how captured our politicians are and how real the stakes are for every American, you know, if we don't manage to actually take back our government and manage to create an economic boycott, an economic cudgel that can, you know, actually wield some power. Here's a crazy thought. Why not raise income tax to the levels pre-Reagan that that we have the very wealthy paying their fair share and just raise it? They will still be millionaires and multimillionaires and billionaires, but just take it to pre-Reagan income levels and and then bring it back into our social programs. This country is for every person, all the 300 plus million people that live here, it's not designed to be just for a handful of wealthy people. And so also, we also have to be better voters and more vigilant. There was a senator who remained nameless, but he was just reelected from Wisconsin. He actually campaigned on cutting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And his his defense or his counterpunch was what I alluded to further uh, earlier oh, there's crime. There's all this crime in Wisconsin. There's all this horrible crime. He couldn't, he couldn't validate in any way. He couldn't come up with statistics. He couldn't come up with solutions. But that was the distraction. And he outwardly said that I would, this is what I want to do. And even if you are not dependent on these programs and a large percentage of Americans are. Do you want to live in a country where the, the people would be devastated by losing losing these programs? Also, there is a senator from Florida who has actively and not only wanted to cut Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid, but he wanted that to be the message of the Republican Senate candidates. And this is a man, I think it's been surpassed now, he paid the largest penalty because of Medicaid fraud in our history. So it's okay for them to use fraud, but it, they want to take it away from everything else. You know, you, 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 you take away the fraud, you take away the borrowing of these programs, you take away the lies about it, and it, these are programs that we need. So let's be vigilant and let's hold people accountable. So I've been sitting here, you know, just listening to you two talk for a little bit because you, you've been covering a lot of different issues, which is super interesting to hear about what the supermajority of America really agrees on and what DSOT ultimately supports. So thank you so much, Barry and Jacob, for really getting into the nitty gritty of what these issues are and, and ultimately what Don't Shop on Tuesday stands for. But I think when we talk about why DSOT 
there's also another level to this YDSOT as well, because you're talking these, you know, the, the issues on a more, you know, especially on our, on the level of the country, these national issues and policies. And then there's, you know, personal reasons why someone might decide to join this movement. Everyone has their own stake. Part of this is that, from my understanding, you know, you are uniting with people who are coming in for their, like, everyone has their own interest, right? So like some people are joining because they really care about Medicare for all. Some people are really joining because they really care about environmentalism. But when we all don't shop on Tuesday, we're uniting around all of these issues. Exactly. So that was the one thing that I was going to say. And another thing that I just want to say, less on the air, was that I think in the original podcast, you two wanted to ask me why. Yeah. Yes. I didn't know if that was. Yeah. So that brings up a great point, Maxwell, about how we get different stories from people around their particular motivations for why it is that they individually have decided that a movement like Don't Shop on Tuesday resonates with them and they feel like it's something they, they'd like to participate. As the newest sort of member of this trio anyway, what could you, would you mind sharing what brought you and what sort of resonated and attracted you to DSOT? Yeah, so I think when I heard about Don't Shop on Tuesday, it really did draw me, I think, because of the, there were, well, there's multiple elements to it. From the sort of national issues that you're talking about, I am part of the LGBTQ community, so immediately those issues affect me in my personal life, in my daily life. You know, you can't really separate political from personal when it is affecting you on that level. So I think from those bigger issues, that is really what drew me when I'm like, okay, you know, Don't Shop on Tuesday is behind these sort of things and I can participate in that. But I also enjoyed the community building aspect of it. The idea that I'm not only in it just because, you know, I care about LGBTQ rights and that that's something that a large majority of Americans also care about. It's also that there's other issues out there and I don't have to only focus on LGBTQ rights when I don't shop on Tuesday. I also get to be part of this growing movement of people who care about all of these other issues. And I get to be supportive of those things as well without making it all about like, quote unquote, my issue. So it was a community thing that really drew me. And then I think the the last sort of thing that really drew me to it was the mindfulness piece to it. Because for me, taking the day, taking a day to not shop I know we've been really serious this episode about these issues, but on a lighter side of things, taking a day to not shop, not engage in you know the commercialism is a very mindful practice to me. Mm. And so it is like a day to like, oh, wow, okay, I don't have to do all of those things. I get to be in community with other people. I get to be an activist, but I don't have to be necessarily like protesting, you know, out in a protest. I get to just like not do something Mm -hmm. and be really reflective about this. And for me, it was refreshing to be not participating in like kind of like this materialistic almost Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's challenging also, especially at first, like it was really hard. So all of these things drew me to the movement. Does it get easier? Yes and no. (laughs) I love that you bring up the mindfulness and sort of that adding that conscious element to it, that is definitely something that I resonate with as well. And sort of the idea that when we were first designed this, as we mentioned in earlier, you know, podcast discussion episodes, that 
we were trying to figure out an action and an activity that people could both that anyone could participate in and that sort of met and resonated with the difficulty level that was actually achievable, you know, consistently for most Americans. And so in a very consumerist culture, sort of fighting against a little bit of that consumerism and the mindset of just if you get people to start just occasionally asking and examining their purchasing habits and power by just saying, could you take a not even consume less, but just take a break for one day and start exerting some level of control over that, that that does that that can then empower one to start making other decisions and being more consciously reflective of the choices that that they're making. I also love that you that you talked about, you know, community building and that that this is a thing to bring people together. You know, it's I'm it's a situation where I feel like often on the left we have this there's this paradoxical struggle with how to simultaneously let everyone celebrate and realize everyone's individual identity but at the same time figure out how to create a community of solidarity made up of those individuals. And I often find that what happens is, we, you know, people can swing too far one way or the other in terms of so overemphasizing individuality that it becomes difficult to join together and sort of recognize the commonality that, that we have, even though we're all individuals, and create the solidarity that's enough power to actually change things at a systems level. But then on the other hand, you know, you can create too much conformity and and basically ask people to lose what makes them interesting, beautiful individuals. And so I think and I hope that part of what Don't Shop on Tuesdays does is it walks that line in terms of having a variety of popular issues that are admittedly support, but anyone can bring their own individual reasoning and passion behind why it is that they're in particular not shopping on Tuesday. But by the action together, we build a global solidarity and we recognize the commonness in our struggle. Both of you, very, very well said. At the end of a Tuesday, I feel very connected to people I know and don't know that people are fighting all over this country and at reaching out over the last couple of years to different groups and activists, I've met some amazing folks that are that are doing really important work. And when Jacob and I designed this, we wanted something that was safe, that was elegant, that was simple. And in the ensuing years, we've seen protests be criminalized in different ways and made very unsafe. I mean, just cars plowing into protesters or police, look, whatever. I mean, it, it's not a safe activity, even though it is absolutely part of the DNA of our Constitution. So we wanted something safe. It didn't matter anything. It, nothing mattered, but you could do it loudly. You could do it quietly. I frankly have not struggled with not shopping on Tuesday, and I outshop the both of you to the 10th level, but I, to me, it brings me hope. It brings me solidarity. And as I said, I feel so connected and I feel stronger. And I feel that I have, my voice has more heft and more allies every day and every year as, as we move forward. Absolutely. I, 
I want to give listeners just a little bit of an idea of just how united indeed we all are on some of these issues so that you can indeed feel and know that if you agree and believe that, you know, agree with these things and believe that change is needed, that you are in fact not alone, but you are part of a massive majority and that joining with us, you know, we can help build that power to make that a reality. So things like expanding social security, right? We've got, we've talked about how over three quarters of people want that. For things like money in politics and removing that corrupting influence that we've talked about, we have 80 to 90% of Americans who want to remove that corrupting influence of money in politics. We talked about, and we've had a podcast before with our fantastic ally, Chrissy Holt, who around universal health care and how the public option has an enormously high support of over 70% and Medicare for All still consistently polls above 50%, sometimes up into the 60s. And then finally, of course, we've talked about things like civil rights and labor rights and women's rights and human rights in general. And indeed, despite the extremely vocal and hateful minority, right, 80% of people say that they favor laws that protect against discrimination. And 66% say that they support marriage equality. And again, a supermajority support abortion rights. We've got over 70% people supporting unions. And these issues go on and on, from gun safety to immigration reform. And I could just continue to list them. But the point here is that at Don't Shop on Tuesdays, we want to cut through a lot of the misinformation and divisiveness that comes in a lot of our American political discussion. And we want to say that, in fact, we are indeed united and that if we unite not just politically, but economically, that we can begin to shift the political discussion and wield power on behalf of the American people so that our politicians actually begin supporting us. So I want to thank all of you for joining us today. And until next time, don't shop on Tuesday. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at don'tshoponTuesday at gmail.com. You can find out more about the movement at don'tshoponTuesday.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash don'tshoponTuesday. And you can follow our Instagram at don'tshoponTuesday.